and welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. I'm Greg Roche. And in this episode, we're going to be featuring an interview that I did with Albert Evans of Contact Engine. The interview that Stephen has done with Albert is really, really interesting. It's a really good mixture of psychology, customer service, and is very interesting for anyone who, who wants to understand how humans, how customers make decisions. There's bits in it about artificial intelligence, nudge theory, the language that's used, self-service. I hope you all enjoy listening to the interview that Stephen's done with Albert. I'm here with Albert Evans of Contact Engine to talk about some of the articles that he's written for Customer Insight magazine about behavioural science. So... Albert, could you just give us, I guess, the one sentence version of you know what, what is behavioural science and why does it matter when we're talking about customers? So behavioural science, uh, I think in this context, is uh, thinking about the way and the why uh, people behave the way they do. And thinking about how sort of as an organisation you, uh, you can use that information to give your customer uh, not only a, a good experience, but sort of satisfy you know, your objectives, if you like, yeah, those should be part of the, the same thing. And it's using the, not only the insights gained from sort of, you know, understanding choice architecture and, and, and that sort of thing, but also the method to doing things sort of scientifically, thinking about your, your own decision-making in sort of a, a scientific way, if you like, um, and thinking about your customers uh, as well. Yeah, thank you for that. And so I think that there's loads and loads of things I want to pick up on there uh, in that. Just in terms of kind of definitions and terms, I mean, you, you talk about behavioural science. A lot of people talk about behavioural economics. Some people yeah. will talk about nudge theory. You, you mentioned a choice architecture there. So yeah. are those all effectively ways of, of saying psychology or is, is there more to it than that? Well, I mean, I think so, right? I, I, I know there are there are sort of differing opinions on, um, on, on whether or not it's behavioral economics, behavioral science. The fathers of the subject are, are psychologists. I, I think anyone who engages with trying to understand decision-making in a, you know, human decision-making anyway, is, is a behavioral scientist. Um, you're, you're thinking about behavior. You're trying to take a certain kind of approach. That approach is you know, ubiquitous in, in all kinds of social um, and, uh, and, you know, physical sciences and just tr trying to be very specific and, and having evidence to support what you do, really. Uh, I definitely think it is a bit of a rabbit hole. Uh, you, you, can, you can get into some real arguments uh, about, you know, <laughs> you know, what is it? Is it behavioral economics? Is it behavioral science? I, I think it's easier and more practical to, to, to think of it as the, the field of just human behavior. And it's moderated by all sorts of different things. It's a, uh, a cross, uh, cross subject subject, if you like. Yeah, and I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think you said really anyone who's interested in human decision making is doing behavioural science, kind of whether, whether or not they call it that. And definitely that resonates with me because, you know, I'm coming from a, a sort of market research, customer experience point of view. Clearly, we're interested in, in customers making decisions. Uh, if someone is a service designer or a user experience designer or yeah. really anyone who's, who's building a product or something that interacts with customers, then they need to know about how customers make decisions to do those things well. So it does touch on, if well, it, and, and perhaps even within an organization, how, how, how are your employees making decisions? You know, that, that you need to be a behavioral scientist to understand those things properly as well. Yeah, it's, it's definitely something that people just engage in uh, implicitly uh, I think you get to a point where like if you're calling yourself a behavioral scientist then you're like you're you're probably doing something very scientific 
you know, you're, you're, you're maybe, maybe you're using a lot of, you know, mathematical modeling and, and stuff to try and predict behavior. But I think by and large, uh, in particularly sort of in the, you know, in, in, in the world of, of business, um, you've got a lot of people who are engaging in this stuff all the time <laughs> and uh, have uh, a wealth and breadth of knowledge about how people make decisions in different circumstances that are normally highly contextual, given, uh, given what your business does or, you know, what, uh, what specific problem your business solves. That, that have knowledge that isn't sort of represented in academia. I mean, we, we talked about this briefly before, uh, the replication crisis that often goes on in, in like uh, cognitive psychology and um, behavioral science, you know, how, how hard is it to redo an experiment and uh, get the same results? Well, part of the problem, I think, is that uh, it's such a highly, as I said, contextual area of, of, of exploration. You know, people make decisions based on so many different factors. You could be, or I imagine you would be a better expert in a, if you had been directing those decisions as part of an organization for your specific problem um, for a long time than someone who's maybe coming from an academic background with a very sort of finite set of academic work on the subject. So I think I think there's value in, you know, all, all sides of that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, we always talk about the, the sort of primacy of, you know, experiment and data, and that's there's a lot of value in that. But I was chatting to a friend of mine who's an anaesthetist the other day, and he was talking about a, a review paper he, he was looking at in, in the literature that he reads, and it was a meta-analysis, but a meta-analysis of studies with kind of four and five and three subjects. And he was saying, really, like, it's a good thing that we're, we're trying to do a sort of meta-analysis of this, but there, there just isn't the evidence base to, to make decisions on. You've got to, you've got to sort of prioritise clinical judgment in that kind of situation. And I think that's really the same point that you're saying, that, that it isn't always possible to have a good enough evidence base to make a totally sort of objective science decision. You have to use that contextual knowledge of experts on the ground to, to, to sort of get knowledge as well. Yeah, I mean, I, and, and particularly in that situation, I mean, an anesthetist is making some very serious, uh, serious life and death decisions. Uh, but I, I think, you know, in the same way uh, or a similar way, if you're if you're a decision maker in a, in a large organization and you're you're constructing some sort of you know i don't know a, a, a reactive um co conversation for you know customers coming in or, or something proactive outbound the best person to make that decision the person with the most evidence hopefully <laughs> anyway um as to why that would be the right decision uh, we hope will be the person uh, who's got the experience of dealing with those journeys and, and understands you know the context around in those situations, what, what customers need uh, and all that sort of thing, you know, as you say, like a, the, the clinical environment, I suppose, in business is, is just, uh, is, is, the, is the customer environment. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think yeah, that, that knowledge at the front line is, is something you'd never, you'd never want to sort of uh, science out of the way because, because it's going to make things worse, not better. My instinct, and I'd be interested to know your thoughts on this, is that where behavioral science and, and you know, other models can help is by giving a lens that people can use as they do that. So let's take, for example, um, Mindspace as a framework, and there are other kind of behavioral science frameworks out there. That's quite a, a, a good way of introducing people to the kinds of tools that, that behavioral science gives you and, and, and ways of understanding how people make decisions without necessarily having to start all the way from scratch, but to say, well, here's a sort of a framework that you can use that will help you understand the kinds of things that influence customers decisions that you can then put together with your knowledge of, of this specific uh, context to make to help them make good decisions totally and um and and really that was kind of where I was coming in on this uh 
this series of articles, which started as just uh, one short piece where I thought, oh, God, no, no, these people need to know about this and this and this. And in the end, you end up with, you know, <laughs> a small mountain of information. Uh, and it's because you're you're trying to inspire people to think about decisions in a in a in a systematic way that maybe they don't normally people make decisions i mean and this goes sort of into part of the problem you know you want to encourage people to think about their customers decisions um and then what sort of choices you're giving a customer but at the same time you've got to think about your own yeah <laughs> and that's that's excruciating sometimes uh to think you know am i going about this in a systematic way can i prove what uh what i think is going to happen and uh and yeah having those conversations with industry experts who they've got the experience they've got this like you know this anecdotal framework that, that just works for them and then teasing out you know where the improvements are if you can or if you can uh use that approach in a, in a similar vein and doing it in a very sort of structured and rigid way which i think is uh which is what academia i think often gives people is this like this system for finding things out right that's definitely definitely was part of the the motivation to giving people this like um, a very uh, a practical understanding of, of how people make decisions because I mean the, uh, once you start getting into that you know you 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 get into this world well what if it's not uh, uh, a system one and system two how what if what if system one is made of you know a um, hundred different systems and so on? and and it probably is mm -hmm. but uh, what we what 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 the the idea was or the motivation was just to give people a uh, something practical so they can they can sort of hold in their hands if you like and i think all right I, I can see that this is this type of problem that's a really good point about system one and system two because i i think for any listeners who haven't come across these ideas before system one and system two were, were, were phrases coined by daniel kahneman in thinking fast and slow to get at the idea that a lot of our decisions are made very very quickly and unconsciously and some of our decisions are very slow and conscious and rational and thought through uh, or reasoned out rather than rational is probably a better way of putting mm. it. And those terms have really taken hold. And a lot of people therefore treat them as, as if the brain has two physical structures that are separated out. And, and that's not at all what Kahneman was saying. He, he was just saying it, it's helpful to think in terms of you know, quick unconscious decisions and slow conscious decisions. But that gets very quickly turned into, yes, we've got separate brain structures and people will start talking about lizard brain and, it, and, it, and that's all nonsense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, and that's that's one of the issues, right? When, and when you see this in real life, like when you go, when you try to implement something like this and you say, right, I want them to engage monkey brain now and, uh, and, and respond as quickly as possible. It's not how real life decisions uh work i mean it's very easy to see in basic examples you give someone like a tricky uh i, I include a, a couple in the articles um a tricky uh, thought experiment you know like uh if uh, if a lily pad doubles in size every day and it reaches full size uh, it fills a pond in 48 days how many days to uh to, to fill half the pond and you know most people say oh 24 and i'll say ah oh, tricked you it's 47 um and it and it, it it really exemplifies just how this this problem but if you're making a a decision say uh say you're booking uh, an appointment right to have an engineer come to your house to install something right uh, and you're given a date well you're probably not going to make a type one decision there even if you've been prompted right that type one is sort of like a uh, a construction if you like just a, a way of thinking about a rapid decision of there is a there's naturally going to be some symbiosis there you know between those two systems if you like um so yeah absolutely i think it's really important to just bear in mind that it's uh, when, when you're thinking about decision making in general it's really complicated <laughs> so uh, try using using these sort of uh, analogies i think is a, a good way to to think about system one and system two is a uh, is ideal yeah it's a useful way of framing it but it's not 
literally true. Yeah, it it couldn't be. I mean, any more uh, of left brain and right brain is is literally true, or you know anything else like this. It, it, it's a simplification that helps you think. As long as you know yeah. that, that, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and uh, it's one of those things that you again, it's a, another rabbit hole. Uh, I, I think I, I started getting into that a little bit in in the article about uh, sort of a very rough overview of of, of how those systems work. But it, I definitely think it's useful to to think about certain types of rapid decisions in that context. But yeah, be, be cognizant that there's there's always more going on. There's norm and, and a lot of interplay between the two. I think um, confirmation bias works a lot like that, you know. So on the one hand, if you see something that you agree with, you might instantly say, ah, yes, <laughs> you could consider that type one. But there's pro there's some more going on there. Actually, your 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 system too, if you like, if that's the bit that does reasons and belief, that's getting involved. He's using this framework to say, ah, there's there's a there's some there's a, a whole you know wealth of information here which says that that's right. Go with that one. Yeah, and I think yeah, in in organisations in general, that's that's almost always right, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it, there's this idea, oh, this is the way we've always done things around here, and that's bad, and it can be bad. You know, it can lead you into sort of complacency and and resistance to change, but actually. If it's been working for fifty years, it's it's, it's probably right. You know, most yeah. of the time, those things are probably right. As with all these heuristics, confirmation bias exists because it's actually pretty useful most of the time. Yeah, and that's but that's, that's uh, and and that's I suppose where like as you say, the the, the benefit of of applying some some systematic thinking uh, comes in. You can if you're right, sort of, you know, eighty percent of the time, that's great. But um, if you can unlock that twenty percent. That could be huge for your business in, or, or just in, in general, right? Just your general decision-making. I think these, these things extend outside of sort of, uh, you know, the, the, the business world. Although, again, that, that does get, it gets kind of, if you're monitoring your de decision-making that closely all the time, that can be a little exhausting. One thing that, that I'm really interested in is to think about the interplay between sort of behavioral science, the way we make decisions, and systems thinking, which, which I think is a really useful tool for understanding how organizations work and, and sort of create a customer experience and for me the thing that binds them together is this idea of bounded rationality um, which is kind of core to behavioral science and in, in many ways core to, to systems thinking at least when it applies to people so the idea of bounded rationality is basically if you take sort of traditional psychology and economics you modeled people's decision making as being rational you know that they optimize personal utility all that kind of thing we, we make rational decisions in our in our own best interest we do the sensible thing and then actually obviously we don't do that because effectively we don't have full information bounded rationality is the idea that we make pretty good decisions given the information we have available to us most of the time and um, so it's, it's this idea that when we're not these kind of when you read too much into behavioral economics you still get the idea that we're completely sort of wildly running around responding to these unconscious drives with no rational control of what we're doing we're never making a decision our unconscious brains are making all our choices for us and that doesn't feel true does it but at the same time i recognize that i'm not making totally conscious rational choices all the time and i think bounded rationality captures that really nicely that i'm doing my best we're all doing our best we're not ridiculous we're not totally unconscious but we're not totally rational either we're doing the best with the information available to us it's funny really because it's it's a little like a um a pendulum right so i know you go, you go back some years and uh and, and people were these rational units um you know computers which uh which made their decisions based on very strict sort of syntactic rules and uh as you say optimize utility um and we went from this sort of 
I think I write uh, homo economicus, if you like, to this homo emotionalis, which is, uh, you know, something that is much more influenced by emotion, context, perhaps bad beliefs and, uh, and probability. But uh, I think some people, as you say, take that maybe a little too far um, because <laughs> people are definitely, definitely weighing up pros and cons as they do things. I think, um, uh, I think part of that uh, decision-making process, uh, which is perhaps underplayed, is, is just how uh, probability comes into that and how there is just sort of this innate error there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you're being irrational. Mm. You know, uh, you might be, you're making, you're perhaps making rational choices, which are informed by sort of some sort of motivated beliefs uh, on the best evidence you've got. For me, a lot of those unconscious heuristics are mm. the sort of reasonable guesses, and mm. but they can be hacked either deliberately or accidentally. So, you know, for example, famous things like, you know, how do you choose a bottle of wine? You choose, you know, the cheapest one on the menu or the second cheapest one on the menu or all these kind of models for how we make decisions. We always choose the, you know, the middle price bracket or you know, all these kind of, all the ideas of, of priming and anchoring and all of the stuff that you talk about in the articles are uh, shelved that, that thought for a little bit. Oh, I want to talk about the ethics of that in, in a second. <laughs> yeah. But are, are ways, are, are things which affect that choice architecture, to use the term used before, they, they affect the, mm. the choices we make based on understanding the kind of heuristics that we use, but the heuristics themselves are actually perfectly sensible. Like if we want a reasonably priced, reasonably good option, going for the one in the middle probably makes sense. That's not a bad heuristic, is it? And yeah, we could invest loads of effort and really map out the cost benefit analysis of each one, but do we care that much? Probably not. So yeah, yeah the heuristic works well enough most of the time. I think there's a, there's a measuring error as well that just comes in when, you, when you're trying to estimate why people make certain decisions because the, you, it's very difficult to quantify things like, you know, because I like that, you know, this is, <laughs> this is that's, that's okay, you know, like when, when you get into the, the space where you're saying, right, well, um, you know, this person has chosen uh, or these people are all, all choosing a set of options somewhere in the middle, you know, why? Well, uh, there doesn't need to necessarily be a greater you know, overarching cost benefit analysis that's going mm. on. And like you say, you, you can't necessarily measure everything that counts. So if yeah. it's I don't know, a digital camera, right, you can measure the the number of megapixels, you can measure the dynamic range, you can measure dot, 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 dot. But you can't measure what does it feel like in your hand? Does it is it comfortable to use? Are you like, do I do I like it? Do I trust this brand? Those are the things that also influence a decision and are rational, I would argue. You know, how much do I enjoy using this camera is a rational thing. Yeah. It's just not susceptible to measurement. Oh, there's so many things like that, really, about when, when it comes to uh, measuring error. I mean, you also get into that a little bit when you're thinking about a customer journey and you're thinking about KPIs, right? Like, what, what are the things that matter? Some of the most difficult things to measure, and I think uh, this is closely related to what you do, Stephen, is like, you know, customer satisfaction, you know, like how happy are people? Those are very difficult things to, <laughs> to get into, you know? And um, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I, I think from from that perspective, when you're thinking about like the say a choice architecture, and you're thinking, okay, are we going to leave the customer satisfied? You know, you you need you need to come up with a framework for trying to understand that. Um, and again, that borders on on the ethics piece. I'd love to get into that with you because I think um, no one talks about it. <laughs> Uh, really, um, but it's. I mean, you so, hinted so at it right at the beginning when you said, you know, what is behavior? It's about understanding decisions, so that you know you can create a good experience and 
deliver your objectives, um, which should yeah. be the same. And that, that was a really interesting little caveat. Because... Yeah, because it's, it's, it's clearly not. Clearly, um, uh, and uh, I like the example, and I just think it's such a useful example because it's so ubiquitous. But um, when you accept a, a privacy policy, like you are, you, the, the, the entire interface is uh, leading you towards clicking that button. Um, and there will be all kinds of ways that nefarious companies will get you to do that. <laughs> and it's, the sim- it's one of the simplest uh, uh, examples of, of this. Uh, I think some people call it dark patterning and loads of different words for it. You know, this, this nefarious use of, of influence or, or organising a choice in a certain way to get you to agree to something that you just otherwise wouldn't have. And, and that's on that's online, right? I'm, I'm, I mean, we, we deal with that all the time, but if, if you spend a lot of time away. But when you're looking at a real physical service or, you know, uh, your, your, a product you're selling to customers, you have to bear in mind these the other very difficult to measure pieces like satisfaction. Is it good for your brand? Is, you know, all these things that, are, yeah, you, you might be able to hoodwink someone into accepting an appointment uh very quickly or you you might be able to inform someone of something with very little interest and if they are actually informed you know have you sent the message yes up informed you know um or do they do they actually understand those are problems and i think that you have to worry about that particularly when you start doing this in a determined way because i think a lot of the time people are perhaps influencing others uh to to make certain decisions without thinking about actually trying to uh direct i think recently i forget the recent uh, law passed in the eu about uh, the use of ai um to to manipulate customers hmm. when you start getting into the realm of you know you're actively trying to influence people you, i mean you should be doing it anyway but you must be concerned about ethics otherwise things spiral very quickly into <laughs> into calamity i'd say uh, when people realize oh i've, I've been duped in a way, I, I do think ethics comes to the forefront because we're, we're talking about influencing customer decisions and behaviour. Is it really any different from what we've always been doing? I, I'm not sure it is. It, it, it's not, you know, witchcraft that we're mm-hmm. practising here. It's not, yeah. you know, I don't think it's inherently unethical. So I think if the decisions you're making as a business anyway were in your own interests rather than in customers' interests, that's bad. And yeah if you it's not about behavioral science it's about whose interests you're trying to look after and for you know my perspective our perspective is that you know good sustainable businesses about built on creating good relationships with customers over the long run if you're genuinely delivering the best thing for customers then that's good for everyone in a way i think it's a red herring like it, it, it is a it's a good place to talk about ethics but i don't think it applies any more in behavioral science than it does in designing a product or coming up with a pricing strategy or thinking about the supply chain or a million other places in business. Yeah, I think it, it comes into play more with the use of technology, which can be more effective at, um, at forcing a decision. Um, because we're, and I think really where it comes into play in that scenario is when you're presenting a customer with choices, are you giving them all the options? You know, are you, are you providing them with a way to as they normally would, you know, before, say before uh, this technological world where they could have made a, a whole range of choices, are you keeping those doors open? Mm. You know, or are you saying, accept my privacy policy or else, <laughs> you know? And I think that's where things get, uh, get a, a little trickier, I suppose. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I think these are problems that have been around forever 
but I would, I would suggest that they're being maybe um, highlighted by the fact that people are thinking about some of this stuff um, more precisely than, than previously. Yeah, I think one of the things that's interesting with technology is that when it comes to things like ethics, it does two things, doesn't it? It, it scales it very quickly. So yeah. instead of being one customer, it's suddenly millions. And it um, it kind of encodes it. it like, even if it's actually not written down somewhere, it's, this is one of the things with, with self-driving cars, I think. It's very difficult to write a program that is deliberately choosing to kill someone. And yet mm. that is potentially what we're going to have to do to make a car that actually drives on the road and has to make a choice between, do I kill my driver or do I kill that passenger? How do, how do we make those choices? And that's that's one of the things the industry just hasn't solved yet. We don't we don't know how to address that ethically. How do you even ask that question? That won't answer. That's a toughie for a lead engineer somewhere. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because it's, it, it's either it's implicitly so or explicitly, it's a choice that has to be made. And if if the software makes that choice, then whoever wrote that software made that choice. And that's mm. a scary thought, isn't it? Yeah, because it's it's just it, when it, whenever you use this. Uh, a system you know it's been built by somebody and uh and and there it, it has a, a motivation a direction so yeah and no, i totally agree that is a that's a conundrum that's a that's a philosophical question that's a, that's it, a tangent well, suddenly all these kind of toy like trolley car problems become very very literal <laughs> like, mm. does a tesla yeah. prioritize the person who owns it or the person that's crossing the road and i, I suspect i know the answer to that <laughs> <laughs> one day when they're everywhere we might find out but uh yeah. Yeah, well, exactly <laughs> we'll yeah see. i just hope i'm not a pedestrian at that point <laughs> me too just to, to sort of wrap up this this episode um i thought it'd be interesting to talk about some some kind of real life examples because we've been talking a lot about theory and you know using it as a as a way to help us understand the choice architecture the way customers make decisions how might we use that in practice? Um, and have you got any stories of, of kind of work that you've done in the past that has made a difference to the customer experience or, or to sort of business objectives? Yeah, I suppose there's uh, two pieces of this really. Um, and one, so one is one is for the one is for when you're presenting something new, and one is for when you're trying to improve something old. In the case where you're trying, uh, let's let's say the the basic case, which is I've done some stuff, right? Or we've been we've been doing this for a long time. We've got a load of data. Um, how can we improve the service? So we have a we have a delivery journey where we, uh, for the longest time, were uh, working uh, to book an appointment, um, get some sort of uh, delivery expectations for the client uh, confirmed, and uh, we were looking at where are the pain points in this journey. So when you're going back and looking at sort of uh, post hoc analysis, you know you're, you're looking at what's what's there, identify where uh, the pain points are. You can do that in a variety of ways. So. I think the best bet for most people is to do some sort of qualitative work. So, and this is where that sort of anecdotal evidence comes in. This is where, you know, this is just getting to the, the meat and potatoes very quickly. What do we know has been an issue? What have, what have maybe agents or customer service representatives come back to us and said, ah, oh, people are talking about this, people are, this is happening, this is happening. Go back and that's where you uh, bring in maybe, uh, maybe an AB test. So you, you identify what the pain point is. Uh, you come back and say, right, we've got this language right now that is is worded in in such a way. So we had an example where we were asking if people, if do if your property is up X flights of stairs, can you let us know? Right, really simple. And it came back that sort of nine percent or, or or thereabouts of all of our cases were about this one issue. Right. Now we found by uh, through, through testing, if we send this message or 
if we send a message that says if your property is not on the ground floor so we make it very explicit we were very clear right um all caps <laughs> is there access to a lift so it's the, the same question slightly different wording right and we, and we track the, the the improvement and we found that after uh, or in that change we had a 68% improvement on issues. So the issues were down from nine and a half to 3%. And that's enormous when, when you're thinking about, you know, if you're dealing, you might think, oh, well, that's not happening if you're dealing with 100 people or whatever. But when you're dealing with tens of thousands, it's a lot of man hours saved for your company. It's a lot of, it's a, and, and for every man hour saved, right, if, if you like, think about the customer that's on the phone having to, having to deal with that. <laughs> Um, you know, for what is really um, a, a, a linguistic issue. So I suppose that when you've already got something up and running, the process is to look for the pain points that exist. There's a load of different ways to do that, but I'd suggest that you engage first and foremost in some sort of qualitative conversation with um, with, with the, the leaders in, in, in that area, understand what the problem is and the pain points are, and then go back and you come up with a measured way to test the difference. Mm -hmm. This tells you a couple of things. One, it could be, you know, is this a pain point? You know, it, or is this always going to be a pain? You know, uh, can we alleviate it? Part of the process going in there is, you know, is there any ambiguity? These are the quick wins, I think, that you've got. When you're doing something new, that becomes a little more difficult. You have to leverage all of your previous knowledge uh, and you might not have any, right? Um, and this is when, when you're doing something new and this is where you can you can look to perhaps uh, industry experts. You can say, you know, what, what, what do you think? Is, is the right way to do this, get some feedback. And that doesn't have to be, you know, I, I think I used the example here of a couple of uh, academic pieces, like, you know, minus choosing the importance of context and semantic prosody, which is, um, you know, how, what is, well, how does a word make you feel, you know, effectively. And the, these are very sterile, but you can go and you can ask industry leaders, what, what do we need to do here? What do you think? You take what is then a hypothesis, right? So we follow some sort of scientific model. We say, we are making this assumption. If we do this, we're gonna, we're, it's gonna be better than if we do the null hypothesis, which is this thing doesn't work, right? You keep whatever, uh, if these are communications going out to the customer, you try to keep this as closely aligned as possible. So you can just measure something very succinct and uh, you, you, you find out you know, through, <laughs> through the AB test, which one was more effective. I think we, uh, we had a, an, an interesting one uh, with a large telco uh, where we were, so we're using our conversational AI to in, interpret reschedule requests right and um so they so at some point in a in a journey we're doing these proactive communications someone comes back to us and says oh we're we're uh, we need to we need we need to reschedule or this state doesn't work for me anymore whatever and we, we our AI understands that and says okay let's send them some rescheduled communications and we found um uh, in, in this case we we weren't sure what the best way was we knew we had access to an online self-serve pool right we also had access uh, to our AI and we can quite you know handily take say oh well what's the, what's the best date for you take that date send it to the to the to the client uh, and alternatively we can just say just call us uh, which is never normally the option you want to go for because it, it wastes a lot of people's time so we tested this you know we took these three different uh these three different things this was when we were introducing this to the telco and we and we were measuring propensity to call so we had a metric in mind we knew what we wanted to produce and we found that the most effective by, I think about 80% was the uh, self-serve option. Mm -hmm. So um, the propensity to call was so much lower when we gave the customer the power. Now that, now that isn't what we expected. We expected that uh, just 
interpreting the, 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 the response via AI, right? You know, there are some assumptions there. We're not linking anyone away from a conversation. We thought that would be more, more, more useful. And it was better, uh, significantly better by about 50% than, than the, the next alternative, which was call us. But in this scenario, customers felt empowered, I assume, to, uh, to, to book it themselves. And it also had a higher um, successful point, right? Or rather, they were very similar between the, uh, between the, the AI group and the um, self-serve booking group. This is an example, I think, really, of why testing is important, because we, we could have very easily just went with, you know, the bread and butter, because we know that for other telcos that we work with, the AI route is the route. It, it, it is the one that works. You know, we, we interpret the, the change response. We go immediately to that and it, and it works. We've tested it. It's great. In this scenario, we had the access to the self-serve and we, and we found, yeah, there was, a, there was a significant difference there. So I, I think, yeah, that's a, that, that would be, I'd say, two very useful examples. I think that that's really interesting, that, especially the, the second one, I think, because for me, so much of, of when you read about examples of behavioral science, what people are talking about is messaging, uh, which is your first point. And, and it's really important, really, Pat. I'm always saying to mm. people the detail of every, you know, every bit of microcopy, everything in a customer experience makes a difference. But, but actually, a second example I found really interesting because it wasn't about messaging, it's about choices. Um, yeah. And first of all, there's that kind of what we think we know about customers, we don't know until we test it. And testing mm. is the only way to, to learn what's actually going to work. And th there's this perception that customers are resistant to self-serve, and they can be, but sometimes it's, it's exactly what you want as a customer. And I think because as long as it's easy, you know, I know that I'm putting the right dates in, you know, I don't have to trust someone I'm speaking to on the phone. I'm probably not that emotionally invested in feeling that empathy connection with a real human mm. being. I'm just picking a date. So as long as that works and it's easy, yeah, why not? Totally. And I think it's something I tried to, to stress in the articles is that, and, and it's before, you know, before, I imagine, right, I wasn't there, but when contact engine started, was this at the forefront of how conversations were organised? Well, really conversations are being organised by what works and how, how can we leverage this amazing capacity for interpreting natural language to, to fulfill some sort of business objective. But I think more and more where we're, we're looking at these, these problems, like how can we organize the conversation? And that's where choice architecture comes in. That is, and it is a form of nudging. It's something people don't, don't think about. It doesn't have to just be what is the, <laughs> what, what is the most persuasive language we can use? Perhaps it's better to organize the choice in a better way you know um we, we do this a lot with um with reschedules actually so we will we know that one of the most common pain points for a customer is reschedule right or when whenever can some sort of appointment or, or whatever's going on if we let the customer know they can reschedule they are way more likely to we're also aware that you know we, we can and we've tested this too let us know if there are any problems right um, we weren't sure if that would work. It does. So we, we, they can come back and say, oh, you've got the wrong person or wrong address or whatever, you know, and, and no, no matter what way they say, we're going to understand. But we can, uh, we can eliminate all the ambiguity by highlighting what the pain points are first, you know. Let us know if you need to change your appointment for anything else. Let us know, whatever, you know. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a whole a host of things there, and it's, it's about organising the choice in such a way that you, you look after the customer's most imminent problems and you direct them to respond in that way. Yeah, I think that's a that's a really good way of thinking about it actually is is making sure and I suppose in a way this is the whole model that contact engine is trying to use but making sure the right information arrived at the right time is such a cru crucial part of the customer experience. Yeah, so I mean a huge part of 
of, of what we do is we're doing proactive communication. First and foremost, we're starting a conversation and we're looking for engagement and understanding, you know, the, the organization of that engagement. What, what do we want to know first? You know, how can we help this customer? What, what do they need to sort out right now? Um, that's a huge part of, you know, writing these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's probably a good time to wrap up this episode. So thank you very much, Albert. I really enjoyed that. I love talking about this stuff and it's been really good to, to get your insight as well. Oh, no worries. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tim. Well, that was a good listening there. I, I can obviously see that yourself and Albert get on very well, Stephen. A, a lot of commonality there. Some really interesting things in what is a, a, a big topic. If you had to summarise one key takeout from it, what would what would you say that was, Stephen? I think for me, it was, as Albert's point really, about how you need to combine the theoretical knowledge and all these kind of frameworks of behavioural science and so on with the knowledge of people on the ground. and what you know what actually works in this situation with the customers in in this particular environment and then test it so it is like actually neither the theory nor the practitioners really really know what's going to work until you try things so they both got you know in, insightful things to say about what might work and we can get you know good designs by by involving those two groups but then it's only by testing it in the real world with real customers that you find out whether it's worked or not uh, and those are kind of, for me, I think those are the sort of three legs of doing, you know, whether it's science or, or whether it's customer experience in a controlled, deliberate way is have a theory, have practical domain knowledge about that thing, and then test yeah. it in the real world and see what happens. That would seem very sound advice for most things, Stephen. And I think we've all experienced times when customer is always right. And if you want to know how to behave, you can have the theories, you can have the views. But actually trying it with real customers is always the best way. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. I hope you found that interesting. Uh, if you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at TLFresearch.com. Good afternoon, everyone.